0: Open up to Amos chapter 4, it's a small book, you'll find it in there somewhere, use your table of contents if you need, it says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family, which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you and all your iniquities, I love you, I'm going to punish you, Um When we look at Amos chapter 3, we pick up, uh, it it is different, it is a new start, it's a new prophecy, there are collected prophecies of Amos, so there's likely been time that's passed since chapters 1 and 2, and what we're going to see here in chapters 3 and 4. Here this word that the Lord has spoken against you is an introductory sentence, it's kind of why they put the chapter break there, and it's referring to this northern kingdom uh, of Israel. Uh, Judah the southern kingdom and and the northern kingdom break off from each other they go a series of kings and the northern kingdom has established a false worship which we talked about last week uh, where they kind of do worship the way they want to and and God has an issue with that but now on top of that they're starting to do things that are contrary to God's law so with under Jeroboam they started to compromise under Ahab they started to antagonize God And and both of them are sins, trespasses, Both of them are things that God doesn't smile on. And he has a word for them about how he feels about such behavior. So when it says against the whole family, which I brought out of Egypt, the children of Israel here, uh, we see very specifically God's talking to the northern kingdom. Here's the thing with prophecy. And I think as mature believers, we need to understand this. When we have prophecies that are put in there, they're here because Amos as a prophet said these things would happen and then they happened. So why would you include prophecies that have already come to fulfillment? And and part of that is because God does some things with prophecy in the Old Testament. All the prophets that we're going to look at, including Amos, they, they made a prophecy that comes true within a fairly short amount of time, but they also then said things about other things in the future. Or they taught some things about God and the heart of God that the scribes and the elders of the temple system were instructed to maintain and keep. So when they found a false prophet, they would destroy everything. When they found a true prophet where things were fulfilled, they would keep those records because they also included things about the coming Jesus, the coming Messiah, or even the end of days. So Amos is no exception to that rule. And and I think this is difficult because oftentimes people will look at an introduction like this and say, oh, this is only for the northern kingdom of Israel. We don't need to even think about these prophecies. That's something that's contrary to the word of God. First Timothy 3.16, as Paul's talking to Timothy about how to pastor, he tells him every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Just because God said these things to the Northern kingdom doesn't mean we don't learn something about God from these things, right? Uh, the, we look at this idea that... Um, the early disciples made a practice of studying the prophets. It's specifically noted in Acts chapter 28, verse 23. It was appointed that they hadn't appointed him a day, and there came many to his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. They had all day Bible study, and what they were looking at was the Old Testament. So it is a absolute mistake for a progressive church to say, we don't need to look at the Old Testament. It's foolish. It's absolutely foolish. Um, But there is this prediction that this too would happen, that there would be a time that there would be teachers that would only give people baby food, and they wouldn't give them any solid milk. Hebrews chapter 5, everyone who partakes of only milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. Literally, he's a baby. But the solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In response to her, that's immediately after talking about the order of Melchizedek, things of the Old Testament, and saying, look, the Old Testament has much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. In other words, Hebrews was addressing an early Christian that didn't want to dig into the the complexities of the Old Testament. And, And I'm saying all this in part because as we walk through Amos, we're not just looking at prophecies for the northern kingdom. We're looking at the nature of God here. And the nature of God says if you're going to practice false worship, he has an issue with that. There's no reason for that to change. In fact, the Bible says quite the opposite. We need to study that heart of God because we too are asked to be a light to the world, just like Israel was. We too are asked to represent Christ on this earth. So when we do things individually at a civic level, when we do things in our church and we've been commanded to be the light unto the world, we should know what God thinks is good and bad about being a light to the world, about being someone who shines on the city on the hill, Jerusalem. But we too are a city on the hill. Jesus made that connection. So to say there's some difference in how God interacts with humanity is to make a large presumption that the Bible never makes. Uh, The Bible is very, very clear throughout the word of God that God is consistent. He hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't move on things. It's humans that move. It's people that start to presume that certain things apply or don't apply to them. And it generally is in areas where there's sin in their life. So when the Old Testament in these prophets calls out things that God sees is not okay, we need to, at some level, Look at that for what he's talking about in historical context. But it's there for our teaching and correction. It's there for us to pursue righteousness. We're also supposed to consider it for ourselves. So you'll hear Christian pastors oftentimes look at the prophecies and say, here's how they applied to Israel. Here's how they apply to Jesus. Here's how they apply to today, because that's the way the prophets were written. It's the way Jesus applies them when he references Isaiah over and over and over again. He's applying it to his current moment. He's instructing his disciples as such, and even after he's resurrected the early church, like I just showed you in Acts, they're still doing the same thing. So the departure from Old Testament prophecies, because they're complex, would indicate to some degree that people that think that are kind of babies in their faith. And people that depart from the Old Testament because they think there's some sort of replacement theology or that it doesn't apply anymore, they're just fools. And they're disregarding what the early believers did and what gave them life in the Holy Spirit would actually help them pursue righteousness. I'm interested in righteousness. I want to know what my God has to say. So it's important to me to understand that even with an intro like verses one and two, I kind of want to know what God sees as an iniquity because I'd like to not be punished for those iniquities. As a church, we can apply it the same way. I want to know what God thinks is good and bad about a group of people trying to pursue righteousness because I'd like to not be punished. I'd like to be blessed. And so when we look at these prophecies, there's many ways to apply them, and not everyone agrees on every way to apply it. And, I, and as a body, we, we we have differences of opinion on those sorts of things. Prophecies, quite frankly, make for great conversation, but they're not for baby believers because they can be confusing and they can upset people. And so I think sometimes that's, as a believer, our lead-in should be maybe other things than, than a discussion around the cows of Bashan, which we're getting into today. You know, I think those kinds of things make for a depth and a complexity and a knowledge of God that's essential. But don't dismiss it because you don't think it applies to you. Because you're then saying that somehow or another this is a mistake that this is in here. Or that only certain people should read certain parts of the Bible and you're doing selective reading. Both of those are hazardous practices when it comes to doctrine. When we're given the entirety of the Word of God and we're supposed to read it in its fullness so that we get the full counsel of God. And this is part of that full counsel. One is, is verse three. Can two walk together unless they're agreed? Nope. You don't walk together with people you're disagreed with. So there's a series of questions here. There's six sureties that are natural sureties. If two people are disagreeing with each other, it's hard for them to walk together. It's hard for them to be in concert with each other. If a lion roars in the forest when he has no prey, the answer to that is no. Lions roar when they, they have something they're trying to get the attention of. Will a young lion crowd from his den if he's caught nothing? Nope. They're excited about their food. They don't cry out when there's no food there. Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? This one's a little more obvious. Can a bird be caught by a snare that doesn't exist? And the answer is obviously. Nope. Will a snare spring up from the earth if it's caught nothing at all? Uh, No, snares snap when there's something in them. If a trumpet's blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? The answer is when a trumpet's blown in a city, people are afraid because that means trouble is coming. And then we get to number seven. If there's calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? So again, this is an easy thing to, and this is kind of the intro here. It's easy to say that, well, we're only talking about Israelite cities. Yet verse seven is giving a truism. It doesn't say when an Israelite lion will roar in the forest. It says when a lion roars, this is just natural things. When there's calamity in the city, the Lord's active in something and active in the sense that God allows trouble to give warnings, just like a lion roars to, to stun its prey, just like a snare traps when there's a bird in it. If there's something that's going to snare us in our life, God is, goes to, he loves us. He goes to the extent of blowing trumpets to let us know trouble is coming. And the point of the trumpets is so that the city reacts and responds to the trumpets. The point of the, the snare springing is so that it catches something. If we have things in our life we need to catch, grab, be aware of, get prepared for, I want to know what those are. So there's a broad application to verses 3 through 6 here that, I, I, again, I think are a caution against those that want to just relegate Amos to a certain period of time. There's truisms here, and it introduces and leads in with these truisms. And this is why pastors will often take prophecy and, and say, okay, well, how do we look today? And I'm going to do that tonight. What are some of these things that God doesn't like that may be existing in our culture, in our society? And that's kind of that can be frustrating because as, a, I think, an immature believer, you, you want to just handle your own dealings. But to think about your society that you live in and say, like, at some level, I need to respond to that or I need to live in such a way that I understand what kind of culture I'm living in, that's an important part of the Christian walk especially Christians that are in leadership and have to make decisions about what direction the church is going to go if we want to be involved or not involved in certain civic decisions that are getting made. Do we want to speak out or do we want to uh, do do ministry and serve? And those decisions are decisions that need to be led by the Holy Spirit. So these readings are things that lead and guide people in those. Verse 7, surely, we just went through verses 3 through 6 where there were sureties. There are things that are predictable. Um Not an accident. (laughs) And surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals it, his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will fear? The Lord has spoken, but who can prophesy? Uh, Verse 7 and 8 are very clear. God doesn't bring judgment without warning. He's going to let his people know. And in this case, he's going to use the prophets to do it. And it's connecting the idea of the very real sense of what prophecy is to the reader. Where a lion roars, the people will fear. When God speaks, there will be prophets that respond. There won't necessarily be a northern Israel that fears these prophecies, as they should, and thus the punishment's coming and it's going to come. And we see through history that God does act on these things. And he does move on these things. He won't tolerate evil forever. There's an end to it. and, And many people call that justice, righteousness. But God doesn't do things in secret. He's in the open. Everything he's done in the open. When Israel took the covenant, it was all the people that took the covenant with Moses. All the people that agreed with Solomon when they established the temple. All the people were on those things. When Jesus rose from the dead, all the people were involved in the crucifixion. All the people knew that the tomb was empty. The empty tomb wasn't even really contradicted in the early church. It It took generations for it to be contradicted. God doesn't do things in secret. He does things in public. So when Ahab takes over as king, God sends Elijah, then Elisha, then Jonah, now Amos. There's this sequence of prophets that have been ever-present in the ears of the kings, convicting them, asking them to repent and change. And then, and I'll say as today, there's people that ignore the prophets. And they ignore it primarily because they don't like what the prophets have to say. The prophets are critiquing applied decisions that people make where they've taken the law and they've twisted it to be something it's not. And the prophets correct those things. Correction's hard to accept. So when we see things that we do that, we know that God never leaves us without a voice, and he left us with the same voice. We get the prophets to speak into what God loves and what God hates. And we can either respond to that or we can just explain away things. Here a sheep breeder is giving the message. God picks Amos I think in part because he's not flashy, he's not stunning. The only thing that makes Amos a part of our scriptures is that it was true. It's not that he was elite, he was respected, he was, he was the head scribe. No, he's a sheep breeder that shows up and takes on the role of what the priest should have been doing. And from Ahab on, God doesn't necessarily speak through the priesthood. He speaks through the prophets. If God didn't care about his people, he wouldn't have sent this messenger. And I think that's important too. When it says, a lion is roared, who will not fear? This idea that a lion roars out of some sort of detachment from the situation. When God roars, it's because he's attached. It's because there's a a passion there and a power there that seeks the correction of the people. The Lord God has spoken. I'm going to just lay this as we get into these punishments that God's talking about. What has God called you to do? The Lord has spoken. And it's not just to one people or another. God has spoken to the earth, to the ends of the earth. God has sent a message and a gospel. What has God called you to do? And there's a natural existence. Like if people, um, you know, if societies and groups of people live in sin, there's a natural consequence to that sin. I think we're going to see in some of these passages hints that there's also a supernatural emphasis that God can put on some of those situations. A corrupt society is going to collapse. And that doesn't necessarily need God's involvement. But as believers, we always ask in every one of these situations, in every one of these kinds of things, is the Lord in it or not? And here's the thing. If the Lord's in it, then we're we're awake, we're aware, we're beholding, we're doing what God's commanded us. We have watched and we've prayed. If God's not in it, I don't think he's going to hold us accountable for, give, for looking for him in the first place. And so I think this is the thing where Christians kind of argue about prophecy sometimes, is the degree to which God is interacting in human history or, or God is not. And quite frankly, as long as we're looking for God, I don't think there's a wrong answer to that question. If you see that event happening being God's influence on your life to get you to be more pure and righteous, then go be more pure and righteous. And if your neighbor thinks you're overreading the situation, point to the fact that you're going to repent to be pure and righteous because it's the right thing to do. And this event just reminded you to do it. So there, there's this idea on how we read prophecy that I think it's, it's really important that as mature believers we don't dismiss portions of God's word. It's in here for a reason, every word of it. And we need to understand it and hear it and not run from it or not dismiss it. Verse 9 says, Proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod, that's the Philistines, and the palaces of the land of Egypt, and say, assemble on the mountains of Samaria. See the great tumults in their midst, and the oppressed within her? For they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. This is interesting. In any courtroom, according to Jewish law, according to God's law, needs to be two witnesses. So in God calling Ashdod and Egypt as the witnesses, he's calling two Gentile nations to come look at Israel. Come look at what's over here. So we've already involved non-Israelites in this situation. We've got two witnesses. This is a language of nations, or a a courtroom of nations, um, and they're using the language of the courts. Even by Gentile standards, God's expecting them to see things happening in Israel that even the Gentiles think is not okay. And he names those things. They store up violence and robbery in their palaces. They don't know what is right. And it's odd that he would say that to nations that have not been given the word of God. They've not been... They've not been entrusted with God's law and God's right and wrong, yet God appeals to them and says, do you see what's going on in this country? And in in the courtroom, when those witnesses can see it and see what God sees, that builds a case for punishment to be administered. The tumults there is mahu maha, (laughs) confusion or trouble. When you look at the cities of Israel, there's just confusion and trouble there, yet economically they're in great shape. We saw last week uh, uh, that... There were houses of ivory getting built. We're going to see that again today. Like, What's making their economic prosperity is that they are taking advantage of people that are poor and they're putting them into labor that has only one application, and that is luxury. It's not just building a house and providing for yourself. It's building an ivory house and and, and killing an awful lot of elephants to get that timber. So this idea of oppression or oppressed people is the idea that you're using the labor of others for your own gain without any fair compensation for it. Forced labor. Slavery. Uh, but we have forms of slavery that look like employment, but they really entrap someone in an economic situation forever and ever. So if God says that storing up violence and robbery in their palaces, you're just making a stockpile of other people's work, other pe- uh, battles and warfare and raids, and other people's... Um, Wealth and and the product of their labor is that that's actually wrong to do that. This opulent luxury or living for the sake of luxury becomes something where we start to see these things pop up in a society. There's a truism here, just like a lion roaring in the woods. Um, It's insensitive to do wrong and have no conscience about it and to be so far gone, verse 10, they don't know how to, they don't know to do right. They'd, they're not even aware that there's something going on here that's wrong. Again, this is where prophecy gets very convicting. Because if we got things in our life that the Lord points out and we think, man, I've been going 20 years doing that thing and God didn't like it, but I didn't even know it was wrong. And you can start to make excuses for that, or you can start to change the behavior and just let it go. What are you clinging to? You're clinging to something God doesn't like. So this idea of using force to steal from or harm folks and to do it from the palaces, the mountains of Samaria would be overlooking the the capital city of Samaria, obviously. God invites people to look at this. Because here's the thing, if Israel's glorifying God in all their ways, he also asks the other nations to look at Israel. But if they're not doing it, he doesn't stop asking them to look because he's either going to bless the heck out of Israel in obedience Or he's going to lift his hand and let this turmoil, tumults come onto these cities. Because without God's protection and God's hand, those things will start to happen. You'll start to have that kind of disorder. This is the nature of our God. This is how God operates. And he's trying to work through Israel to show the world something. And, And again, that hasn't changed. All that's changed, if you go to the book of Matthew, Jesus taught he's creating a new kingdom. Well, what was the old kingdom? Israel. What's the new kingdom? The church. And he's trying to show the world what godly people look like through the church and through church behaviors. So that's another way to think through prophecy and go, okay, how does my church compare on this? Is my church living large and fixing everything up? And does my church have the nicest facilities in town and that we're stockpiling resources on other people's labor? Or are those resources going back uh, to serve the community and bless the community and do things? And as you look around the world, there are different answers to that question. Hard answers for mature questions that go to those churches to ask an answer. Verse 11 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, An adversary shall be all around the land, and he shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces shall be plundered. You know what, Israel? If you're going to live this way, you're just going to have some conflict. And I'm going to allow that conflict to come. And this doesn't mean God is doing the evil of Assyria but he's not going to protect his people from the evil of this world. Humans are sinners. There's plenty of sinners out there. God doesn't have to actively be the one doing the wrong. All he really needs to do is step back and say, okay, you want to take on the world on your own, go for it. So this happens in 30 years. Assyria actually comes. They turn the northern Northern kingdom into a vassal state. Verse 12, thus says the Lord. Another kind of chapter break there. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria, in the corner of a bed on the edge of a couch. Uh, So we get an image here that's definitely coming from a sheep breeder, right? Uh, This is based on a law in Exodus 22. And here's what it was. If you were a shepherd and you were taking care of somebody else's sheep, and a lion killed the sheep, you would still bring the lion-destroyed carcass to the sheep owner to prove that a beast killed that sheep and it wasn't just you having dinner. And so this was just a practice to show the caretaker, hey, this was a lion attack, there wasn't much I could do about it. A good shepherd might fight the lion. Uh, A a sensible shepherd may just let the lion do his thing and show up afterwards and bring the carcass back, and that's where the law was applied. To to shepherds that weren't necessarily willing to risk their life over a single sheep. So, if a lion attacks, you show the owner what it looks like. Assyria is going to attack the northern kingdom. And God is going to leave the broken furniture behind as evidence that this was uh, a lion attack, right? That Assyria came and they destroyed. um, And the only evidence that's going to be left is some furniture instead of bodies, by the way. What happens to the bodies? Well, it says here they'll be taken out. And I think. Again, every word in the word of God is worded perfectly. And we see this happening, uh, this idea of the, the, the Assyria would do this. This was a practice. We've talked about this before. Uh, when they conquered a city, they wouldn't leave people in the city. They would tie them up. And the way they tied them up is they'd have a big, long chain. And then they would put fish hooks on that chain. And they would fish hook the human being through their lip, through their nose, or through their ear and then they would haul them by head uh, out of the country, and they would march sometimes for weeks or months. A lot of people died in those marches, but the point was to relocate the people elsewhere in the empire. So they would take a city like Samaria, and instead of keeping them together where they could revolt, they would split them up and spread them out through the empire and hope that they would blend in and become Assyrians. They were taken out. So this idea that that fancy furniture they had is all that's going to be left to prove that they actually existed at some point is what God's saying here. And then um, verse 13, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts. In the passage, directly in context, he's talking to the Philistines and the Egyptians. I want you to see what I'm going to do to Israel so that you can testify what God does to discipline his people. But again, I don't think there's any reason for us to not also be reading this account and then reading the book of Kings and seeing what happens and making that connection that God did in fact follow through this. We too can hear and testify that this is what happens. When God says he's going to do a thing, he does a thing, which makes us go read what he says he's going to do. One more thing, uh, one more piece of evidence that God's at work is verse 14, "In that in that day I punish Israel for all their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. In other words... When this all happens, I'm going to break that altar. This happens. Um, Bethel was set up as a false worship altar. And transgressions, doing it their own way, a kind of sin. In Second Kings 10, this is described. The sins of Jeroboam who made Israel to sin. Jehu departed not after them. And he built golden calves that were in Bethel and were in Dan. Bethel, Dan, and Samaria were set up as a place of worship that was more convenient than Jerusalem. So God said he wanted all his people to go to Jerusalem and that there were certain feasts that they were, they were supposed to go or at least the heads of the household were supposed to go. And the temple was set up in a very particular way to reflect and mirror what's in heaven. And so God says, here's how I want you to do things because this is the kingdom I want you to know and understand. And it was Israel's job to do their, see it so they could experience and be part of it. They were supposed to gather. And the northern kingdom, when they split off, said, we don't want to gather. We don't want to make the trip anymore. It's too much trouble. And the sacrifice that God's asking, a trip to Jerusalem, is too much of a burden on our people. So what Jeroboam did is he set up these false worship centers. And instead of a temple, he put up golden calves. Why golden calves? Well, you go back to the story with uh, uh, Moses and as they came out of Egypt, all the people built a golden calf. You'd think they'd be over golden calves, but they're not. Uh, And part of that uh, has something to do with pagan religion where cows represent strength on the bull side, fertility on the cow side. And that gold there is definitely an image of heaven. It's used in the temple too, that gold is the purest of the metals. It never tarnishes. Uh, it's seen as the eternal metal. So when you have this eternal strength and fertility of the cow, it's, it's a very powerful image they hold on to. And here's the other thing, not understanding the scriptures They built a golden calf because they knew their ancestors had built a golden calf. So it's a bad reason to build a golden calf if they actually read the book. And so you see these things getting set up, but they talk about the horns on the altar. Horns were another feature of convenience. What you'd put on the side of the altar were these horns. They had to be strong so that you could tie the sacrifice down and kill the sacrifice on the altar. So the, the tie downs were these horns that came off the sides. Well, when you put a calf there or a bull, then there's kind of this natural artistic way to put horns on either side. You just have a bull facing both directions. point here is God didn't like any of this. All this nonsense of what they were doing was not what he asked them to do. So he's, he's laying out the indictment here and in that they had religious constructs of false worship that he's going to cut off. Why would the Assyrians destroy the altar? No reason, but it's going to happen. So it's just one of those checkpoints. When you see this Know that I did it. It's not just a nasty Assyrian nation conquering Israel. It's a nasty Assyrian nation conquering Israel, hauling them off in a very particular way, and then destroying these particular altars for no particular reason. And again, God's saying, here's the cues to see to know that I'm in this. Because obviously aggressive nations are are all over the planet, and they're not necessarily always doing things because God is deeming them as part of his plan. But God does have a plan for the earth. So we have to be looking at it and trying to to discern a little bit. Verse 15 says, I'll destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. Well, starting with Ahab, 1 Kings 22, uh, he built this ivory house. But as we move forward in time, now in verse 15 we see there's houses plural. So people have copied this. Building a house out of ivory is all the rage. It's the trend. It's the thing to do. What does God love or not love about this situation? What's, what's the problem with having a house? Well, they're not just houses. There's, there's adjectives here. Uh, there's a winter house and a summer house. Well, I need more than one house to live in. I'm so important, I have to have multiple locations. <laughs> and God's looking at this and, and, and seeing the Israelites putting more faith in their, the wealth they're stockpiling in their house than they do in the Lord God Almighty. They're putting their trust in these houses. And having multiple houses is a sign of wealth. It's lifestyles of the rich and famous Israel edition, especially when you can build your house out of ivory tusks. Think of the amount of food those elephants have to eat to get old enough to grow a tusk that would be worthy of using as part of your lumber. Think about that. Who's doing the work to grow that food to take care of those elephants? Is that work being productively used in the kingdom or is it simply for the point of opulence? And so the initial accusation was oppression, but in verse 15 we see the very particular way that oppression is carried out. God sees that. He recognizes that indulgence is something that's a problem in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's done everything he can do to get their attention, but all they're worried about is their money. So God's decision on that is that it shall have an end. Well, it has an end. Israel comes to an end, and that's finished, There's no reason to think that God then suddenly approves of luxury and this no longer applies, right? When God's people live off the labors of others simply to please themselves in opulence, there's a major issue with that. And that hasn't changed. God's character hasn't changed. And when he sees people in the church doing that, we should wake up and not back away from that and not dismiss it. But think about, okay, and and again, well, I don't want to beat myself up because I actually own a house and I have things like that. I'm not saying to beat yourself up. I'm saying, have some thought to these things. Are you living simply so others can simply live? Are you balancing your needs with your wants? When you have wants, are you working for them? Or are you forcing slaves to work for them? Right? Do you need to build your house out of ivory timbers, which aren't necessarily any better than stone, but they make you feel good about yourself? Are you buying things just for the prestige And there's no absolutely no reason not to read through prophecy and ask ourselves those questions. In fact, it's healthy. It's good for our teaching, our reproof, our admonishment. It's good for us to pursue righteousness by knowing what makes our God happy and what doesn't. This is where we learn the personality of God, right? Sometimes when Dad gets snappy, it's just because Dad had a long day. But God never has a long day. So when he's getting snappy, it's because he sees something he doesn't want to see in his children. And so he's warning them through the prophets and puts his name on it. The end of verse 15 says, says the Lord, says Yahweh, says that God that's the living God that's the creator of the universe that has decided what's right and wrong. It's not your prerogative to decide if you like opulence or not. It's God's decision to see what that looks like. I want to put in here a condition, too, because it's easy to beat up on the rich. We have a lot of that. God also had rich people. Job was a rich man before he was tried. Solomon was known for his rich monopolies. When people are living righteously under God's law, there are moments in the Bible where God crazy blesses that to show the world that he can anoint and bless righteous behavior also. So this comes down to the heart. You may be blessed with wealth. Are you using it for God's glory or are you using it for your own comfort and your own prestige? And that's a good heart-soul-seeking question to ask yourself. And so there is a degree to where we can beat ourselves forever about everything we have that has some nice feature to it, Um, and there is a degree to which we can say, thank you, Lord, for the blessings we've been given. What can I do? How can I serve? And I think that balance, that discernment, is for mature believers to think about. You can't simplify this down to a bumper sticker. You have to think about it. I'm going to go straight to chapter 4. God's punishments have not reformed Israel. And he's going to go through a list of things that um, are why. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, you who, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. So this is clearly the diplomacy of a sheep breeder. (laughs) Like, this is blunt. Uh, You could go through and search out every culture on earth, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to find one. We're calling uh, women cows is going to be well accepted. Like, this is clearly something that's there. Moreover, this isn't the word for calf or bull. This is the word for a a milking cow, someone who's been fattened so that they can feed their children. Uh, This is in any culture, in any context, in any place, a pretty harsh thing to call a woman and would not be welcomed. So Amos is coming in and he's saying these big cows, and I say big cows because of Psalm 22, uh, uh, Ezekiel 39, the the Bashan cows were called fatlings. They were known to be the biggest cows around, right? It's like uh, It's like saying, oh, you Paul Bunyan Minnesotans. When he says you cows of Bashan, he's calling them very big, fat, healthy-sized women. Uh, And there are cultures where a a robust woman was seen as the more attractive woman. Uh, That's not the case in this passage. He's calling them cows. You should hear it exactly like it's being read. The accusation here is sloth. There's an oppression that's happening because you don't want to do your own work. And you're happy to sit around and live that idle life of luxury while other people work on your behalf. Being on the mountain is an indication that they're in the city of Samaria. On the mountain would be the highest places in the city. In the ancient world, the highest places were where the rich people lived. This is He's pointing the finger at the rich women of Israel who oppressed the poor, who crushed the needy. Well, how are the women doing the crushing? Isn't it their husbands out being the slave labor drivers? Well, it's the women asking for things. Bring me wine, let us drink. It's the women that want to have big, luxurious parties. Well, somebody has to do the work to make that party happen. So they gather people to themselves. They indebt those people to themselves. They enslave those people. And this extravagance is a sign of worldly success on the flesh. But to God, it's just a sign of cruelty. It's a sign of making yourself comfortable while you make other people do all your work. So the demands that they have become a burden. So we joke about this sometimes, right? That we... You know, when you say a happy wife is a happy life or the correct thing to say to your wife is to say, yes, dear, right away, dear. um, God doesn't think that's so cute. (laughs) When you have wives that take advantage of a husband's desire to please them in order to oppress others and live beyond their means, uh, God is accusing the women of northern Israel of doing exactly that. Um, Are there spots today where we have women that take care of their own needs before the needs of their family and before doing the work that God's given them. I was really sad to look at uh, a rising industry right now as big alcohol is seeing that the culture has decidedly um, made the decision that drunk dads are a bad thing. So what does big alcohol do? Do they get out of the business and just quit? Nope. They invest $253 billion in in a very unique ad campaign to convince 30 to 40 year old women that drinking is good <laughs> and they are just going for a new market. We've seen a dramatic increase in women in the last 20 years due to this campaign uh, where they have not just advertised with commercials on TV. They've tried to use social media. So they've created movies like bad moms. They've created, they've gotten pop stars like Kelly Clarkston to say that they love their wine and wine is necessary, especially as a young mom. That I need my wine, and the wine is kind of this lux- luxury or this treat that they can give themselves. And I don't think it's, I, you know, I, I don't think it's coincidental that that you know, bring wine, let us drink. There's this idea that you, there's things they should be doing with their day, Proverbs thirty-one, <laughs> but what they're doing is they just want to sit around and have a glass of wine to just treat themselves a little bit. And there's kickback against this. There's medical articles showing like this trend is not good. It's bad for family. It's just as bad for a family when a mom becomes an alcoholic as when a dad becomes an alcoholic. They're both entirely destructive because alcoholics are the number one category. They're a number one category carcinogen. They're extremely addictive. They cause people to kick responsibilities down the road and they cause people to detach from the people around them on behalf of selfishness. What the memes, the marketing, the merchandise, quotes Kelly Manley, are they're supposed to be so LOL funny, but what they really do is they normalize extremely dangerous behaviors to obscure the truth about alcohol. Well, we thought we knew alcohol was bad, but here we are again with a new generation thinking it's sophisticated and artsy. Now, you can have James Bond Take shaken, not stirred, and you can convince men that they're classy and sophisticated if they drink alcohol. But once those myths have been debunked, now we gotta go after women. And we have to convince them that having a sip of wine is just a, a slight luxury that they deserve and it's good for them. Why is it good for them? Why not have a why not have a, a water with some lemon in it? Why does it have to be alcohol? Because alcohol has a chemical effect on the mind, and it's not one that is intended for child rearing the stress of raising a kid goes nicely with the myth of sophistication but the stress of raising a kid is just the burden that parents have take a nap (laughs) the spirit of the age is a lie it always has been the spirit of the age for the israelites was that it was okay to oppress other people and and get your husbands to bring your drinks That that luxury was somehow acceptable. And God doesn't look at it this way. The Lord God swears by his holiness, verse 2, that that laziness isn't going to endure. That sloth isn't something God sees as cute. It's not sophisticated. Behold, look at this. The days shall come upon you when he will take you away with fishhooks and your posterity with fishhooks. And you will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her. He's still talking to the women. And you will be cast into Harman, says the Lord. Guess what? There's going to be a time when you're not so sophisticated anymore. You're going to get hauled out. Fish hooks will be involved. You're going to be let out through broken walls, broken ivory walls. Syrians are going to, all this stuff that you think gives you security, the Syrians are going to come and wreck all of it. Jesus has warned us that at the end of days, all things will pass away except for the things we do in the kingdom of God. We're supposed to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven because we too have been warned that everything that we think gives us comfort here at some point is gone and we're going to be led to the judgment seat and we have to account for our behavior. Don't think God's changed in his attitude about these behaviors. Don't think that you don't have a consequence that you've been warned about too. So consistently, this idea that they'll be there and then verse four, come to Bethel and transgress might see in your Bible, sin, at Gilgal, multiply, transgression. Those are those places where there was false worship going on. You go to those places, and us, Bethel in the Hebrew means house of God. You go to the house of God and you're sinning there. So they're still calling themselves Jews. This false worship is something God continually is to call out. And, and you would think that you would say, well, I'm doing worship, give me credit for trying. I'm at least doing some of the things you've asked me to do. God doesn't seem to read it that way. So it's, it, again, these are tough messages for mature believers because we want to say we've tried our darndest and we're awfully good people. Do it the way God said to do it, or, don't, or, or God calls it sin, he calls it transgression, verse four. Don't believe that those false worship things are going to do one thing for you. If you haven't done it God's way, you're doing it the wrong way. Wow, that's extreme, that's narrow, that's harsh. Straight is the way and, and narrow is the gate. There are many people that will fall to the right or fall to the left because they don't want to, they just don't want to do what God's asked them to do. So there's a reference here, a a, a direct application to the idea of taking your worship in verse 4 and making it something you want it to be. This is dangerous. Uh, It's easier for them to get a closer location. Those gold calf altars, they're shiny and fancy and very expensive. They're a lot like the temple worship, but they're easier to get to. They pick their own priests. Like there's no criteria for priests. It's easier feasts. They changed the feast schedule. It's like fast food church that they got going. These rival centers of worship were set up in these cities. And here's what God says. Bring your sacrifices every morning your tithes every three days. That's an exaggeration. The, the requirement of sacrifices was every three years, Deuteronomy 14, 28. At the end of three years, you shall bring forth all the tithe of your increase. That's because these were herdsmen and, and agriculture people. A sheep breeder would know that every three years was almost like a holiday. Like this is, this is tithe season. We got to separate the sheep. It was a lot of work. So Amos is bringing in that experience, but he says you can bring in your sacrifices every day. You can go through all that work on a daily basis. You can bring your tithes in every three days. They're not worth anything to God. You can do it your way and do it 20 times harder, but God's not even looking at it because you're not doing it his way. Boy, I hear that. I hear that all the time. I, you know, As somebody who loves the Lord, I want to do everything I can for the Lord, but I can be spinning my wheels and working hard and breaking a sweat doing things for the kingdom, but if I'm not doing what God's asked me to do, there's no relationship with the Holy Spirit. I'm just doing my thing. and God calls it that. He understands what that is. You can you can worship a hundred times harder than a simple act of faith. And God sees that simple act as far more valuable, far more precious. A heart given to him is worth everything. A heart given to our own ways is just worthless. It's amazing how many Christians, Wanna, well, I'll read verse 5. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. leaven. They want to go to church, but they want to hold on to their sin. Leaven is an image of sin throughout the Bible. It puffs up the bread and puts gas and air inside something that has substance. It puts nothing inside of something. And sin is exactly that. It's activity, but it's just nothing activity. It's vain or empty acti- activity. It's activity that misses the mark. The literal word for the mean, the literal meaning of the word sin is to miss the mark. So you can have action in your life that looks something like faith based practices. You can call it church. Israel's definitely calling it Judaism. But those things are of nothing. And listen, you can offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. You can proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, not children of God, children of Israel, says the Lord God. For this you love. They actually like it. And I think that's one of those things has God changed? Nope. Have we been asked to worship? Yep. Have we been told how to worship? Yes. How does God feel about it when we make up our own practices around worship? For this you loved. The flesh loves form without substance. A great piece of freshly baked, leaven-filled bread, it's tasty, but that's not the point. They ate unleavened bread because there was a symbol or a message. There was something to be learned. So I can go into a church. I've done this, you guys. Like, I'm going to confess, I've done this. I've been there. Steph and I would go to churches and we would assess them. Like, I could have made up a rating scale on various things. How are the greeters? Is the coffee bar sufficient? Are the decorations cool and updated? You know, because if they're not updated, these people just don't care. Um, Is the music something I can enter into worship on? Is it something that blesses my heart? Do Do I like the life tips that the pastor gives me? Are they things that actually are applicable? Um, how do I like the fancy cow altar that they have up at Bethel, you know, or, or, or do they have good Wi-Fi at this church? Um, or most importantly of all, especially in Minnesota, are these people done by Vikings time? And can I get to my sporting events in a reasonable amount of time? Because I don't want to spend too long at a church. There's just too many eyes in that process, right? It isn't about me. It's not about the leaven, It's not about the things I want, the empty things. It's about honoring God the way God's asked to be honored. So it's feelings. Feelings are not a good way to determine what's going on in your kingdom. Israel, not a good way to determine if Bethel and Dan and Gilgal, if these things are doing it right, because you're doing it based on what you prefer. Here's here's a way to judge a a, a faith community. Is sin getting confronted? Are there prophets? Are we reading the prophets? (laughs) Is repentance getting made? and is God getting the glory? And I I honestly think that idea of when we weigh our worship by our level of obedience instead of our level of preference, we're making much more mature decisions in our faith. When we weigh weigh our worship by relationship with God and whether or not our relationship is growing and bearing fruit or if it's staying stagnant for 30 years, that's a major thing to consider. And, And when we weigh our worship, we need to look at who gets the honor When I walk out of the room, am I celebrating the glory of God even more, or am I just celebrating the quality of that worship team or that speaker, or if somebody gave me a hug before I left or not? I hope, by the way, people are getting hugs. It's another conversation. The joy of worship is ascribed. We do what we're obligated to do, and God blesses us as we do it. It's not the other way around. We're not given something when we walk into a church. We're not there to expect anything from the church. We're there to actually serve the church. We're actually there to minister to the body of Christ. We're actually there to do some work. That's why God sets aside the day-to-day work that we have to do the rest of our lives. That app can happen over six days. On the seventh day, it's to be God's day. We're doing God's work. We're supposed to take a Sabbath, a break from the world, and do the things of the kingdom. These are wake-up calls. God's going to get... Uh, In the next series, he's going to give a set of wake-up calls that are supposed to wake us up. Uh, Verse 6, I I also gave you a cleanliness of teeth in your cities. That is not because they were brushing. That's because they didn't have food. You had a lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. So this is a pretty lean one. There's just less food around, right? Food costs a little more money. You know, that's that's an early warning sign for the Israelites. I also withheld rain from you. When there were still three months in the harvest, I made it rain in one city and I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon. Where it did not rain, the part withered. So so two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. So he, he notches it up a bit. These are progressive. Verse six, there's food shortages. Now there's water shortages, right? A little more important. God controls the rain. So again, you could read this and say, well, this only applies to Israel. I think that's a mistake. If this is one of the ways God speaks to his people, then we have some truths here that, hey, God does affect the weather. So as a, a, a discerning Christian, when weather patterns get weird and funny, we do ask the question, is God trying to say something? There's nothing wrong with asking that question. And so even though some people get a little more you know, uh, intense about that than others, I, I do think it's something where... Um, the way the world works, there should be a normal pattern of rain. And, and I think in verse 7, it, it, there's a supernatural intervention that God is trying to point out. It's not just rain here and rain there. It's that one city gets it and one city doesn't. And so odd weather patterns, things that don't quite make sense. They don't add up in a natural way. What's going on here? Um, so this idea of wandering to other cities to drink water, I, I see a lot of this. I, I don't know about you. So if you're looking at this in a in a spiritual sense, water is often an image of just the blessings of God. And right, water comes and the blessings come up. And so when we're looking at this and thinking, okay, well, God's got a kingdom he's working through today, it's not Israel today, it's the church. It's God works through the church and you got some churches that have blessings and some that don't. What's going on there? And and I I think it's a pretty obvious connection to see that when churches are being blessed and there's abundance of rain in those churches and the Holy Spirit's moving and things are happening and things are, people are growing and improving. It's not about the number of people. It's about the number of blessings that are happening there. And you see a people of God, when you're doing it God's way, people are blessed by that. And they look back and say, man, a year ago, I was dry and parchy ground. But at this point I I got, I I got, the rain has come and there are blessings in my life and I can see the growth. This is why weather forecasters are still speaking in percentages. They don't know everything about the weather. And this is why I think in the, in the church age, there's extreme particularities between churches that may and likely have something to do with the practice of that church and the fidelity it has to God's word. Verse 9 says, I blasted you with blight and mildew. Blasted there is uh, an emphasis, emphatic word. I blasted you with blight and mildew when your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, and the locusts devoured them, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Blight and mildew. Blight comes from harsh winds, so God controls the winds. Uh, Mildew comes from worms, so God has some impact on the animal world here. Um, And then you get this idea of a locust devouring them, clearly the animal world. It's interesting because, again, we have another feature here that as human beings we've been studying these things for a long time. We still can't predict which way the wind's going to blow. We can't we can't predict how hard it's going to blow. You know, we might come up with some you know observations of what the wind was doing 100 miles to the west and then say oh it's likely going to continue or not continue, but we re- it's really unpredictable. And there's odd changes in these things. You'll have tornadoes that hit half a house and so when you look at odd behaviors in weather patterns or even grasshoppers, grasshoppers are normal animals, but researchers look at grasshoppers and see odd shifts to their neural networks that something triggers them. And we still haven't figured out what it is, but they'll start to move like a, flock, like a, a, a school of fish or a flock of birds. And they'll start to operate together and eat together and, the, and they get hyperbreeding mode. So they turn into these swarms that we call locusts. And so there's lots of different breeds of these. They're all over the world. But you got some t- parts of the world where there's just locust storms on a regular basis. North America hasn't seen a locust storm for 100 years, where it literally eats everything in its sight. They're terrifying. to This is much worse than just having a lack of bread around. This is the lack to even have the grain to make the flour to make the bread. So you're, you're, you're at least in it for a few years here. You don't even have seed to make the next year's crops. So this is both plants and animals. There's no reason to think God's changed. When he wants to talk to people, there's no reason to think he wouldn't use these tools to talk to people. He has here. He's the same God today. So what would God say and how would God do this? This is why Christians track things like extreme weather patterns or uh, or locust storms or plagues that come upon the land and blight that happens to crops. Those are things that, you know, maybe they're natural occurrences and they cause us to repent because we're reading too much into them. Maybe it's actually God at work and they cause us to repent because we're reading the right amount into them. The degree to which we read into prophecy or not isn't relevant. What's relevant is the end of verse eight. Yet they have not returned to me, says the Lord. If at any sign of these things we return to the Lord, that's a net good in either direction to matter how much degree we're reading into it. So I want to encourage you When you see things in the news that are extreme weather, things going on with plants, 28 million chickens being killed last month, February 2022. When you see things like that happening to the point that they make the news, does it hurt you to say, does God want me to repent? Is there something I can do in my life to fix it? Where's my church at? The the regular practice of returning to God, refreshing, renewing in the Holy Spirit, what a blessing. So if you're resistant to seeing those things and even discerning or think about it, ask yourself this. Am I really a mature believer? Do I want to know when God's moving and shaking on this planet? Or I don't want to blind or do I choose to put blinders on because I have some silly ideas about the Old Testament? Or or perhaps there's sin in your life. What you really don't want to hear is that you kind of like the opulent life of the bashing cows. And you don't want to hear that God wants you to change that behavior. So it's a little easier to just dismiss it all. Think about that. Verse 10 says, I sent you among a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your men I killed with a sword along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up to your nostrils. That's either illness or it's death. You've not returned to me, says the Lord. Again, there's this mantra, you haven't returned to me. So we get plague, sickness, and virus, and we get Killed with a sword? Warfare and conflict. The last 50 years, the CDC shows that there there is actual, the the plague, the plague, the actual plague, still exists. It exists in the U.S. What we don't know about it is just like grasshoppers and rain patterns, and we don't quite know how it works or why it does where it does. You know, it's an odd thing that a populous state like Florida has zero cases and a not populous state like New Mexico has 253 cases. It's an odd thing. So we don't quite know how God uses some of these things because we don't really know how they work. We haven't unpacked it with all of our knowledge and comprehension. Food, water, blight, pestilence, plague, all natural events. You can excuse all of them as just natural occurrences. Okay. You can also, through a biblical lens, say, is there something God's trying to say here? Is there there something that God's trying to communicate to us through these tools? And so any nation can go astray. In fact, a corrupt nation is going to naturally collapse on itself. Any nation can can have storms and can have natural occurrences. But this idea that these occurrences are intentional by God, it says the manner of Egypt in verse 10. Those were not natural plagues in Egypt. They were abnormal things happening. Um, So when you see new diseases pop up out of nowhere, uh, that's not natural. Those diseases uh, shouldn't be happening. Uh, warfare is not the natural state for humanity. We don't naturally wake up in the morning and desire to kill people unless we're sociopathic. Um, but when entire nations are going to war with each other, something's broken. There's a spirit of humanity that is, is gone. Uh, warfare is a net evil no matter how you look at it. So God can work via these situations. By the introduction of warfare, God's saying that he can work through political means too. So yes, he's speaking to Israel here. Has he spoke to other nations? Well, we have Christians for the last 2,000 years that would say absolutely. Some of the accounts of the Revolutionary War, uh, those believers absolutely believed God's hand was at work during that battle. That God, God says that he raises up leaders and he puts down leaders. That's not unique to Israel. These are tools that God uses. Verse 11, specifically, I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were not Israelite. They weren't the northern nation. So God's making the point here that I do these things, and there's no reason to think he, does, he has stopped doing these things. As you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me. The whole point is to return to the Lord, says the Lord. We know that kings last long and short periods of time. We've read through the book of Kings. We know that the book of Kings has some connection. The they're telling you how long they were in office there. Um, has some connection to their, holy, their righteousness, the degree to which they held to God's word. We know that Sodom and Gomorrah were sinful cities. It, that was the reason God destroyed them. They were so full of abandon for their own way of life, so dedicated to cruelness and selfishness, sexual aberrations, that God gives them a reminder that in history he has destroyed cities and he's telling the, Israel right now, he's saying, I've just done this before. I'm, I can do this again. There's no reason to think he wouldn't have this in our Bibles so that we can read it, witness it, and hear the exact same message. He did this to the Northern Kingdom. He can do it to us. Judah, Judah read it that way. Hezekiah read it that way. Look what they did to the Northern Kingdom. We better repent. So Hezekiah, Josiah, they did everything they could do to repent their country. So there are people that read this after its first fulfillment and they read it that way and that's a biblical account. I'm going to encourage us to read it the same way. God has done this. He's done it again. He did it again with Judah and he can continue to do this sort of thing because he loves us. So when we see these kinds of things happen, we should repent. Great revival after World War I. Great revival after uh, the, the, the Vietnam War. We just saw a movie about it. Great revivals happen after these periods where people do see it as a warning. They do see the meaninglessness and the evil of war. It's an extreme intervention by God to do that. But those conflicts and those wars should lead us to return to him, says the Lord. That's an eternal message. Return to me. Jesus says to be repent and be saved. At an individual level, are there wars in your life? Is the rain falling on your life? Are you happy? Are you blessed? Do you wake up in the morning with shame or a sense of righteousness and purity? But I tell you, it's way better to wake up in the morning with a pure heart than it is with a shameful heart. I, at some point as a believer, we get sick of living with, at war with everything. We just get tired of it. Lord, I want peace. I want, I want your reign to, to reign on my city. There's no reason to think that God doesn't put these in here for our instruction so that we can pursue righteousness. Yet you have not returned to me. Verse 12, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Prepare to meet your maker. Uh, Therefore, uh, thus, God's not okay with the crimes we just went through. Therefore, thus, uh, all of these things, all of these, the ignoring of the warnings is the therefore for verse 12. Let me point that out. He didn't list a series of sins in this section. He listed a series of warnings that he gave. It's the ignoring of these warnings that they did not return to him or repent that is now adding to their transgressions. Therefore, thus, these are warning shots. When we ignore what God's trying to say to us because we're not watching, we're not praying as Jesus taught his disciples, we're not even caring or we're dismissing things because we seem to know better than God how he operates, that's dangerous. Watch out for that. It's a very fleshly human thing to do. It's getting to be very popular in a progressive church. Do watch. Do pay attention. Do tune in. Wake up. Don't be blind because you don't want to see things. See them so that you can repent and return to the Lord. Prepare to meet your God. I like the prepare to meet your God. This is, this, this is one phrase that means two very different things to two very different people. So ask yourself this. If I said Jesus is coming tonight, like when we wrap up tonight, Jesus told me he's returning. If I said that, I'm not saying that. But if I did, would that be a warning to you or would it be an exciting invitation? Like, and that's the thing. It's like when kids are at home and they're misbehaving and mom, you know, with, with Steph, mom would say, oh, I'm going to tell dad when he gets home. That wasn't good. But if kids were doing their schoolwork and they just made something really cool and did an awesome creation and, and Steph said, oh, boy, I'm going to tell dad when he gets home that's like an excitement. That's like, oh, let's set an appointment. This is really cool. If I said so-and-so is coming in over to your house, do you panic and repent and, and clean up the house and straighten everything and get it all ready to go? Um, or do you already have a clean house and you just start saying, oh, how can I make this more special? And you start thinking about hospitality. Well, your preparation is an important way in which you get that message. And I love verse 12, prepare to meet your God, O Israel that can either be a call to repentance, a warning, or it can just be the blessed assurance of a God that's going to make everything right. So for everyone that's hearing this in the throne room as Amos delivers this to the king, uh, we're to do both. We're supposed to repent and we're supposed to be excited about our God having that kind of connection. So now it's coming, right? This is both a firebrand and it's a loving welcome. God's coming. Again, Jesus promises us the same thing. He's, this isn't different today. Jesus said, I will we return and I'll come in the blink of an eye. You won't know when I'm coming. So your job's to watch, pray, and preach the gospel to all nations. Yes? So when we think of this, it hasn't changed a bit. Like God is still operating with us in this way. He's coming and we're supposed to prepare for him. The blessing with Jesus, he says, he's preparing a place for us too. And I, I hope that's a good place for you. For me, it is. My, I've already got a match. Imag- I've already sent in like prayer requests on what my place looks like. Verse 13, look, for behold, he who forms mountains, <clears throat> creates the wind, declares to man who declares to man what his thought is, makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Look, I want to break this down. I'm just, we're going to, these this last verse Spoke to me this week. Hold on, let me get a drink. For behold, he who forms the mountains, he who creates the wind. We're reminded of who we're dealing with at the end of Amos chapter four. I'm kind of closing this prophecy, or it's prophetic message. The point of prophecy is for us to know God. And when it says to behold, that's not specific to a time or place. It's specific to all people that seek who God is. I want to know who God is. Well, here's a great description, just one of many. And the very first part of it is to actually look. That's what kind of why I emphasize that point tonight. When we say we don't want to look at prophecies or we're not interested in prophecies, are you interested in God or not? I'm just going to be really blunt with y'all. You care what God thinks or don't you? Are you trying to make excuses to protect your filthy sin? Or are you trying to find ways to get rid of it and dump it? What are you clinging to? What are you holding on to? If God doesn't like it, throw it. Don't just don't just make excuses or minimize how much of it you take in. Screw that. Get rid of it. Get it out the window, out the door, out of your life. And then watch the rainfall. Watch the blessings come. Ah, I struggle. I need it because I have so many struggles. And you know what? Maybe the struggles are because you need it so much. Maybe you're thinking of this in the wrong order. Look, verse 13 behold. Open your eyes and see the God that's right in front of you, that acts in history, that moves in things. He did back with Sam and Gora. He did with Israel. He did with Judah. He did with the, the Mosaic system itself was taken down. Jesus said, I'll take that mountain and move it. The temple comes down just like Jesus said it would. And now we have the similar sets of commands in the church age Jesus is coming back. We're supposed to prepare to meet him. Yet you got Christians doing all the wrong things and making excuses for it. Just like they did here. This is absolutely applicable. And the God has not changed. Verse 13 is to look at the God that said these things. Which God are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with our special buddy, Jesus' friend? Or are we dealing with the God who formed the mountains? Who created the winds? Are we dealing with an all-powerful God who is not to be trifled with, not to be toyed with? There's a truth here, and it's truth that gets lost in human extrapolation on, on religion and theology. Humans that get lost in the weeds of theory and theology. You're dealing with an almighty God that's given you a really simple instruction. You don't need one theology book to know that. You're supposed to prepare to meet your God. And if you're not ready to meet your God, you got some business to do. There's no promise that you or I will live until tomorrow. I say things like that and I worry about a heart attack or something. Like, there's no promise that I'm going to live till tomorrow. Am I ready to meet my God? Is my house clean? Or is it not? The mountains and the wind, in verse 13, strikes back to Genesis 1. The the wind that he talked about in in the warnings that he gave, he controls those things. He made those things. If he wants to reclaim them, he sure can. It says, who declares to man what his thought is? He doesn't just know the mountains and the wind. He knows our thoughts. He doesn't just control the physical world. He controls the mental world and existence. He knows what we're thinking. The sovereignty that we think we have over our life is far surpassed by the sovereignty of God. He's sovereign over mountains, wind, and humans' thoughts themselves. He owns that. Who treads the high places. That could be mountaintops, right, that God just walks everywhere on earth. It could be the high places. In the Old Testament, high places are bad. High places are where false worship happens. This is interesting. We think that when we walk away from church, we're, we're outside the presence of God suddenly. Church is somehow more holy than other locations. This challenges that. He treads the high places. He treads where the sinners are. Because everything's under his domain. When sin happens, it's always in front of his face. The the word in the Hebrew is panim. It always happens in front of his face. So he's in the strip clubs. He's in the sports arenas. He's in the college classrooms. He's in your basement. He's in the garage. He's, he's watching what you watch on TV. He sees it all. This is where prophecies are. We don't like to be reminded that he, that he declares to man what his thought is, that he can tell us what we're thinking. It's how we recognize who God is, by the way. We should never forget that when God does this, he treads the high places, that we think they're high places, but to him that's actually coming down to our level. That's a condescension. And good kings condescend to their servants so they know what's going on. Good kings will meet people where they're at, but they're clearly in authority over them. We've taken the word condescension. We've made it a bad thing. We've made it a negative thing. I don't like to be condescended to, but that's because I think I'm so great. Children don't, being, don't mind being told things because they recognize their parents are in charge, at least at a, at a young age, right? This is an active God. God, in this verse, forms, creates, declares, makes, treads. Wait, this God walks? This is a sheep breeder talking about a God that he knows. The God he knows formed it, created it, declares things, makes things, and he walks. What's his name? Well, we're in the Old Testament. We don't get the name yet. So we get this. The Lord God of hosts is his name. So we get a descriptor. Uh, Yehovah Elohim Savasem We get a descriptor, a great descriptor It's the same descriptor that God gave with David Second Samuel 5.10 uh, God, David's God was the God of hosts you know, And it's the same one that Elijah was pining for When he was hiding in a cave He wanted the God of hosts to come in First 1 Kings 19.10 God of hosts is an established term or moniker That God's given himself He repeats it through Amos Generations later To remind them that he's been with them through history So uh, I love the fact we don't get the name of Jesus till Matthew 1. So you could just dismiss that this God just isn't the same God that Jesus is. You could just walk away from that. I'm going to encourage you not to do that. God's God, whether or not he's incarnate, whether or not he happens to be treading at the moment, or if he's creating, he's still God. Uh, And the name is not revealed because God gives progressive revelation. And at this point, he's identified the town, Jerusalem, or he's identified the nation, Israel. The tribe, Judah, the throne, the throne of David. He's he's given us lots of identifiers for Messiah, but at this point, the Lord of hosts is his name. Jesus is the Lord of hosts. Revelation says he'll come back with the hosts of heaven because he is their Lord too. He's a general of armies, not just a carpenter. In the flesh, we see a carpenter, in the spirit, he is the Lord of hosts. And I want to reckon, I I, want to say that. When we look at Amos and and any prophecy, again, it's already been fulfilled literally with Assyria bringing punishment, but there is no reason to think Amos doesn't inform us as to how to identify Messiah. Let let me walk you through this and we're going to close on some of these thoughts. On verse 13 alone, alone, it says to behold. Verse 23 of Matthew chapter one, when announcing Jesus, the first word is, behold, a virgin shall be with child. God with us, God, Emmanuel, is to be seen and beheld as an incarnate being. Behold, we're told in Amos. He forms the mountains, Matthew 17, 20. Jesus says, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible. Because Jesus is telling his disciples, when you pray, you unleash my power and I'm the one who formed the mountains. He creates the wind, Luke 8, 24. Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and suddenly the storm stopped and all was calm. He got a a, a, a little s storm right there, <laughs> and all was calm. God created the wind. God can stop the wind. This is how we identify Messiah, right here in Amos, right here in a prophecy that's already been fulfilled with, with the punishment of Israel. We see these perfect connections. I'll keep going. Who declares to man what his thought is? Luke 9, 47. But Jesus knew their thoughts. So he brought a little child to his side. Lots of references to Jesus knowing their thoughts. And he makes the morning darkness, Mark 15, 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From nine o'clock to 12 o'clock, he made the morning darkness. So you could say, oh, that's just artistic language. That's just glorifying God in language. And it is. It's 100% that. Yet there's a, a holiness to the words coming through Amos that are validated in the fulfilled profo- prophecy that give us very clear knowledge that when Jesus shows up, he's the guy who treads the high places of the earth. Where was Jesus when he talked to Satan? Satan brought him up to the high places. Where was Jesus when he turned the temples over in the temple? He went to the high place of the temple, which had become a location of false worship. He went to the temple of Solomon and he flipped some tables there. He walked through the courtyard. The Lord of hosts is his name, Matthew 1, 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, who of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. We're given the name of Jesus. Progressive revelation. One verse, verse 13. And we have seven different ways in which we can identify Messiah. It is foolish for a believer to bypass Amos. (laughs) It's foolish for us as believers to not take seriously what's in the prophets. They're there for a reason. They were there to instruct us and identify Messiah And there are passages in the prophecies that are there to instruct us and guide us on the nature of God and our pursuit of righteousness and how we get closer to God. As we mature, we want to know those things. I don't want to keep anything in my life that is a disturbance to God's relationship with me. Nothing. I don't want to be a cow of Bashan. I don't want to be somebody who just passively does things that upset or irritate my Lord. Teach me, O Lord. Show me your ways. Revealing me any wicked thing in me. Purify me. Take my lips, Lord, and touch coal to them. Burn away anything impure in my life. Help me to not make excuses for sin, but make excuses to spend more and more time with you. Help my whole heart to flip on that, Lord. Instead of claiming my mommy me time or my daddy me time, Lord, help me to claim my, my Jesus time that I'm going to redeem every moment for you in your name. In Jesus' name I pray.